Turn with me now, if you would, to the Word of God, to Genesis chapter 3. So continuing in our series in Genesis this morning, we're going to be looking at Genesis 3, verses 8 through 13. I was tempted to title this sermon the Primal Perusia, but I thought that'd be a little confusing. So I just put the sound of the Lord God. Genesis 3, verses 8 through 13. This is God's word, inspired, infallible, authoritative. Give your full attention to it. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me, fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then God, then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The reading of God's word. Pray with me. Lord God, before us is your word. Grant to us now illumination by the Holy Spirit, Work in our hearts and in our minds and work in and through the preaching of your word to help us receive what you have revealed here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 3, 8 through 13 may not be what you think it is. What's happening in Genesis 3, 8 through 13, may not be what you think is happening. See, our English translations somewhat obscure the true nature of the situation that's unfolding here. Now, as as was our usual custom, we read this morning from the English Standard Version. That's the version we normally use. Its translation of the first half of verse 8 is an example of what I mean when I say it might be somewhat obscure what's actually happening here. We read there, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the impression that we may take from that will not do justice to what's actually happening, to what's actually transpiring here. You guys can tell me after the service if I'm wrong, but the impression that we often receive from our English translations, the picture that may be painted in our minds as we read this might go something like this. 
The Lord God is taking a casual early evening stroll in the garden. Much like some of us might take a walk in the park just before sunset. Yeah? The good old King James Version also conveys this kind of impression. And you can see it's very close to what we have in the ESV. It reads, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The NIV, the New International Version, gives a similar impression. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. My favorite is the message. That translation that goes by the message. It says, when they heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze. That's nice. Again, generally, the impression that we may receive from these translations is one where you have the Lord God strolling along, humming or whistling a happy tune, maybe talking to the squirrels, making his way to his favorite creatures, Adam and Eve, whom he likes to meet with regularly, unaware of the state in which he's about to find them. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that that impression is entirely wrong. This is not what's happening in our passage this morning. What is happening in our passage is nothing less than the coming of the Lord God in judgment. This is the day of the Lord. This is the coming of God in judgment. The scene being painted for us here is not idyllic, it is apocalyptic. It is, as my Old Testament professor Meredith Klein would say, the primal parousia, and parousia means coming. Primal means at the beginning, first. It's the coming of God to judge the world. Dr. Klein expressed it this way. He said, Genesis 3.8 describes the approach of the Lord God following the fateful disobedience of the man and the woman in the garden. Judgment was the purpose of God's coming, and he proceeded at once to prosecute his lawsuit against the covenant breakers and to pronounce the damnation of their tempter. That's what's going on. In other words, we're going to need to change our impression somewhat. Change it from that one of the Lord God blissfully, cheerfully strolling along in the garden in the cool evening breeze, looking for his usual strolling partners, happens upon them in their new sinful condition. We need to change it to one of the Lord God coming as the judge of the earth, to pronounce his verdict and enact his judgment. How do we know this? Well, let's start with what it exactly was that Adam and Eve heard. What did they hear? Some translations like ours has sound. 
Some translations, like the King James Version, has voice. What did they hear? What was that sound or that voice that obviously instilled such fear in them that they immediately proceeded to try to hide themselves in the trees, among the trees in the garden? I mean, if it was a casual, Adam, where are you guys? That might not instill in them the kind of fear and produce the kind of reaction that we actually see. What is the sound that they heard? Was it the sound of soft footsteps along the garden path? Again, is it the sound of a casual conversing or, or calling out to the man, hey, you guys, where are you? No, it's not that sound. And it's not a voice like that. Again, my professor, former professor, who's now in glory, he wrote, the sound in Genesis 3.8, however, is not that of, a, of mere footsteps. The passage, you music, you talent, music talents will like this, the passage must be played fortissimo. What Adam and Eve heard was frighteningly loud. It was the shattering thunder of God's advent in judgment. See, this may be the first time in Scripture that we read about the sound or about what's called the voice of the Lord God, but it is not going to be the last time we hear about it. And those who originally received and heard these words of Moses in this passage, they would have been very familiar with the sound or with the voice of the Lord. They would not have to go far back in their memory banks to recall a very great and terrible day when the Lord God descended upon Mount Sinai. Let me read from Exodus. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountains. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord God had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. That's Exodus 19, 16 through 19. Scripture tells us that on that day they never saw any form of God, but they heard him. They heard his sound, to be sure. They heard his voice. And that encounter, that sound, that voice would forever burn in their memories. When they heard the words, when, they, when that original audience who received these this book initially, and heard what Moses was reading here, what write, was writing here, as they heard verse 8 of chapter 3, and they heard the sound of the Lord God. Their impression would be quite different, <laughs> wouldn't it? It would be quite different from what our modern translations of the Hebrew may 
sometimes convey. Think of what they would think of when they, when the text reads, they heard the sound of the Lord, they'd be like, oh yeah. <laughs> no wonder they ran to the trees. Now later on in redemptive history, the Lord God told David that he would fight the Philistines on Israel's behalf. On one occasion, God said, I'll go out for you and I'll fight for you. And at that time, he told David, here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold back, stay in your position until, and this is interesting, he says, until, quote, you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself for then the Lord God has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. That's 2 Samuel 5.24. The sound of God is the sound of the marching of an army. Ezekiel heard that as well later on in redemptive history. He wrote of God coming in his angelic chariot throne as God approaches upon the wings of the cherubim and so forth, Ezekiel, Ezekiel wrote, And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, like the sound of tumult, the sound of an army. Imagine an epic battle with the clashing of shields and swords. It sounded like that. According to Ezekiel, again, the sound of the coming of the Lord God is not the pitter-patter of quiet feet on a garden path. Rather, he said, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Imagine the sound of a waterfall. Massive, raging river pouring over in a waterfall. Can you hear anything else if you're standing close by? It's like that. In the New Testament as well, the sound of the coming of the Lord is quite a sound indeed. Think of the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now that Hebrew word in our passage in, chap in verse 8 of chapter 3, the Hebrew word call, can be translated either sound or voice. And this is why some of our English translations have, like the King James, has voice instead of sound. In either case, the result is the same. Whether you translate it sound or voice of the Lord God, the result is the same. Remember what the psalmist said about the voice of God? The psalmist in Psalm 29 Verses 3 through 9 wrote, or he sang, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. 
The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The, the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. In, and in his temple all cry glory. That's the voice. Now again, you're Israel. You're hearing these words. Moses proclaims them as Moses speaks them. Or you read these words later on as they're inscribed. They might well remember. No doubt those who originally heard these words remembered that time when they had to cry out to Moses at Sinai when they heard the voice of the Lord God. What did they say to Moses? They said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, <laughs> lest we die. That's Exodus 20:19. Again, Meredith Klein summed it all up well when he explained, whether it is the sound of the advancing glory or the sound of the Lord speaking from the midst of the glory, that call Yahweh. That sound, that voice of Yahweh is characteristically loud, arrestingly loud. It is likened to the crescendo of ocean and storm, the rumbling roar of an earthquake. It is the noise of war, the trumpeting of signal horns, and the din of battle. It is the thunder of the storm chariot of the warrior Lord coming in judgment, coming in judgments that convulse creation and confound the kings of the nations. That was the sound. That was the voice that Adam and Eve heard. If such a voice, such a sound, makes even the earth to quake and the mountains to jump, what effect do you think it would have upon sinners? We knew that we were naked. They hid themselves. That's what they did. This fear, their fear, is the fear of those who are facing the coming of God in judgment. It's the same fear that we read about later in the book of Revelation, the vision of John, the apocalypse of John. In Revelation 6, verses 15, and 15 through 17, we read there, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And that brings us to the other expression in this passage in verse 8. The cool of the day. The cool of the day. It likewise is not what we might have thought. The Hebrew word translated cool 
is the word ruach. A word that can be translated as wind or as breath, sometimes breeze, or spirit. Think of it as the spirit of the day. The day of the spirit. Rather than understanding it as some cool evening breeze at the close of the day, we might better understand it more literally as in spirit of the day. And by spirit, we do mean Holy Spirit. And by day, we mean the day of the Lord God. It's the day of the spirit of judgment. Because the spirit of God, contrary again to maybe popular sentiment out here in the world, the spirit of God is, in fact, in the Bible, the spirit of judgment. As we'll see tonight, Ananias and Sapphira found out. He's the spirit of judgment. The psalmist understood this, and he understood something about the spirit that perhaps Adam and Eve didn't, because he wrote in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? I can't hide, is what he's saying. If I go to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light be about me, the the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. It's the spirit of judgment. It's the spirit of God who hovered over the formlessness and void and darkness back in verse 2 of chapter 1, back in the very beginning. It is the spirit of God who was revealed there, who formed and filled this world, making it into a kingdom, a kingdom unto his own glory, It is the Spirit of God who comes now again into a sinfully darkened scene, bringing his light. The light now is of the judge. The light from which sinners seek to hide themselves, but cannot. But at the same time, because it is the coming, of the Lord God, because it is the coming of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the day. It is also the light and promise of a new creation, even the promise of redemption. And I'll come back to that. 
But what else happens? What follows in the rest of our passage? I've been looking a lot at verse 8, but what happens throughout the rest of the passage? Indeed, it's a scene of judgment, isn't it? The man and the woman are brought out of hiding and are made to stand in the light of God's judicial presence. He begins his examination, collecting all the facts, hearing their testimony in his court. Of course, we hear some blame shifting and fingers are pointed, but nonetheless, the facts are brought to light and a judicial decision and judgment will shortly follow. This is a judgment scene. All in all, this scene is a terrifying one for Adam and Eve especially. It is, as Dr. Klein described it, the primal parousia. It's the coming of the Lord God in judgment. Now the question we, we should ask when we hear this, when we read this passage is, who can stand? How will they stand? Can they stand? Who can stand on the day of the spirit of judgment? When God, the just judge of all, who knows the thoughts of man, who knows the very words that we have before we speak them, the judge who asks the questions, who can give him an answer? Who can stand? The scene that we read here, that we see here, drives us to ask the question whether in fact this is going to be the end. It would appear that the story of creation, the story of humanity having just begun, is going to end in the day of judgment. It would appear that Satan perhaps has accomplished at least this, that he, by his deception, ruined God's plans for men. Those made in the image of God, made male and female, created to serve God as his prophets, priests, and kings in the earth, tasked with subduing the earth and consecrating it unto the Lord God in worship, it appears now that all of that for which they were created and the glory for which they were intended is going to come crashing down in the judgment of God. It's going to come to a swift end right here, just after it began. Our purpose, our telos, the glory of God for which we were created, that Sabbath hope and promise that was set before us, it's lost now, it seems, forever. It ends in judgment. But even now, there is a ray of hope. God has, in fact, come in judgment. This is the day of the Lord. But the God who comes now in judgment, again, is the same God, the same Spirit, whose voice was heard at the dawn of the first day. Let there be light. The Spirit of judgment has come, the very Ruach of God, the breath of God. But it was that same Spirit, the same Ruach, that breathed into man on the day of his creation, gave him life. The coming of the Lord God, the coming of the glory of the Lord God, the coming of the Spirit of the Lord God on the day of the Lord is indeed the coming of the end. 
But it was also the herald of the beginning, wasn't it? This is what Satan overlooked. Somehow, the promise of God implied in man's very, humankind's very image bearing, the promise of God set before, set before us in the Sabbath, the seventh day, would somehow yet be realized. Our first parents sinned, and that sin would indeed bring God's judgment, his curse upon them and upon the whole world, even the curse of death, for all sinned and fell short of the glory of God. But keep in mind, brothers and sisters, this God who comes in judgment is the God who created all things in the beginning, out of nothing. The God who brought light, light, light out of darkness. The God who is not the God of the dead, but of the living. God's purposes will not be thwarted by a crafty serpent, nor by our sin. His very presence now is the presence of hope. He will bring about all that was promised in the beginning. All his designs for man will yet be realized. And praise God that we who live on this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ know exactly how that promise and original design was fulfilled. But for now, brethren, let us give thanks that the day of the Lord as we see here didn't mean the end. And we're going to hear later in the curses that God pronounces, again, that ray of hope, the light that comes out of this darkness, God's promise still abides. God is still the God of hope and salvation. But as we think about this passage and the coming of God, let us rightly understand the Lord God, the one with whom we have to deal. Let's not take him lightly. Let's not anthropomorphize him to the point of he's a good buddy of ours who we hang out with every now and then. As Peter said, brethren, let us not overlook this one thing. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, 
And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, conform our thoughts, our mental images, who you are, to your word. Um, We pray that you might remove from our thinking any kind of syrupy, sappy sentimentalness when we think about you, but understand you are right as you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Truly, it is a fearful thing to stand before the living and true God. Truly, you are a consuming fire. And truly, as sinners, we ought to and do tremble before you. It is the fear, that primal fear, we have as sinners. We know, the whole world knows, that there is a coming day of reckoning. And when you come, it is not going to be a secret rapture. It's not going to be a little quiet event. It is going to be the shaking of the entire cosmos. You will come in judgment, and your voice will end all things. By your word, you will overcome all of the world. You will judge it, and it will be no more. But we thank you that by that same word, you brought all things into existence, and that the word himself became flesh and came to us in a way in which we can know you, we can hear you, and we can have hope of salvation through him. May we look to Jesus Christ. May we listen to his voice. May we escape in him the coming judgment that is coming upon sinners. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.